Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, southwest wind 35 knots. Seas 15 feet. It's 2017, and I'm on the western coast of Alaska in this remote village called Mutok, which is home to a community of about 400 Yupik native Alaskans. And in this moment, a family is calling the Alaska Weather Information Line to find out how bad the incoming storm is going to be. West means uh, the water will be higher than normal. Thank you for calling the Alaska Weather Information Line. I'm looking at the piece of land that looks like it broke off, but it might be the lowland over there. Back then, I was a climate change correspondent, and I was reporting on how this community was trying to move their entire village to a safer location. They wanted to move to avoid the catastrophic permafrost thawing that they had been experiencing on the land that their village was currently built on. Every time a piece of land breaks off, when I'm staying over at my uncle's, I can hear it and I can feel it. You can feel it? What do you mean by you can feel it? The house shakes a little. The house shakes. At one point, a big chunk of land broke off and it was felt and heard all across the village. Every time a storm rolled in, chunks of land, I mean huge pieces of soil, would fall into the surrounding water because the permafrost just wasn't able to keep it all together anymore. And this was happening fast. While I was there, I personally saw 10 feet of land just fall away, bring the shoreline closer to nearby houses, threatening people's lives and their shelter. While I was there, I talked to this man named Romy, who told me about feeling abandoned. It's going to take millions of dollars to move New Talk. Mm-hmm. Why should that money be spent on moving a couple hundred people? There's going to be a point in time where the village cannot sustain itself anymore. Mm-hmm. And what do you do with these people? Where do you take them? What happens to their identity? What happens to their culture? These are part of the U.S. people that needs to take care of. But not only that, what happens to the rest of us? If we cannot get this right, what happens to the rest? These Native Alaskans had been placed on this land by the government. And when the land started to crumble, it felt like government officials were washing their hands of the whole thing. So... I'm listening to this guy give this impassioned, beautiful speech, and all of a sudden, I'm crying. I can't believe it. I'm a professional here, on a job, talking with someone who's dealing with stuff that I'm never going to have to deal with personally. And yet, I'm crying. That grief 
It never stopped hitting me in waves, overwhelming me, frustrating me for years, honestly, the entire time I had the job. I was feeling helpless and then feeling guilty for feeling helpless. Today, I think I have a word for what that feeling was, one that I didn't know back then. I think those waves of emotion were the beginning of what people around the world are increasingly referring to as eco-anxiety. This is Vice News Reports, and I'm your host, Ariel Dimros. So eco-anxiety is an umbrella of thoughts, feelings, and impact on functioning that can enter one's life when facing up to the immensity of the climate crisis that humanity faces. And it often is discussed as eco-anxiety or climate anxiety. Britt Ray is a researcher who focuses on the mental health impacts of the ecological crisis. She's also the author of the forthcoming book, Generation Dread. I called her up to gain a better understanding of these feelings that I, and likely so many others, are feeling, either consciously or unconsciously. Mental health professionals believe that it really is about co-occurring emotions that are really prevalent, that go beyond just anxiety. It includes grief. It includes rage at the injustice and inequities bound up in these predicaments. It includes sadness, fear, terror, also those that relate to agency. So a sense of helplessness Hmm. in the face of the overwhelm of it all or powerlessness, whether we're talking about the climate crisis or systemic racism or militarism, for example. What's happening is that you are feeling the effects of profound unhealthiness that surrounds you, mm. that is being put forth, promulgated by business as usual, so to speak, or you know, just the general system in which we live. And so importantly, ego distress, ego anxiety, whatever you want to call it, it's not a pathology. It's not a disorder because actually it's a very reasonable and rational response to be disturbed and distressed by what's going on. And it's a sign that you're awake to the world as it is and that you care about what's happening. The term eco-anxiety was first defined by the American Psychological Association in 2017 as a chronic fear of environmental doom. And now the term is popping up everywhere. There are newspaper articles and TV reports. Overall, it's this useful term that is really starting a conversation about a part of the climate crisis that hasn't always gotten that much attention. The mental health impacts on human beings. I guess I just want to tell you that when I was reading your book, I started out reading it with the idea I've never experienced this. Like, I don't have eco-anxiety. Uh-huh. And I covered climate change for three years. And I remembered as I was reading your book that I used to describe what it was like to be a climate change reporter as waves of grief and numbing one after the other. Mm-hmm. where I would feel not nothing. I always felt something when I interviewed people, but it, it would be so deeply, it would be tamped down. I wouldn't allow yeah. myself to feel everything. And every once in a while, I would like open up that door and just feel all of it in a magnified sense. Huh. And as I was reading your book, I was like, oh, that's, that's, <laughs> <laughs> 
maybe that's what that was. Um, <laughs> so it, yeah. it was it was useful for me. Thank you. <laughs> it's nice oh, to have a word for, for it. <laughs> I mean, I'd be fascinated to hear more about what you mean with that kind of on and off effect. So I guess as a coping mechanism. Yeah, but I think that's what it was. I think that's one hundred percent how I I coped with interviewing politicians who would tell me that these disasters are are not actually as bad as they are or not caused by what we know they're caused by. Um, right. It, feeling, you know, like these people, I cannot budge them. Even if as a reporter, I could ask the best possible question I can, they will not change their minds. Mm-hmm. And so I think it wasn't so much closing myself off to what these communities were experiencing, but it was like closing myself off to what these politicians and decision makers were telling yeah. me that was blatantly wrong. Yeah. And not allowing myself to feel that rage. Mm-hmm. Because if I did, I felt like I'd explode. Mm-hmm. In talking to Brit and others about this, it seems like this numbing or suppressing that I was experiencing, that's also a pretty common response. And maybe some of you have been listening to this and thinking, I don't really relate to this whole eco-anxiety thing. Like, oh great, another thing to worry about. But sometimes our emotions look less like anxiety or distress and more like denial or disavowal which is sort of like having one eye open and one eye closed as a defense mechanism. There was a line in your book that really resonated with me. It was the idea that people who experience eco-anxiety or eco-distress are are maladapted to a sick society. Yes, you're having a reasonable, understandable response to something that is truly unsafe and unhealthy and uncaring, that is not being interrupted by, by leaders who we put in positions of power to protect us. I guess the thing that, that goes through my mind as you're talking about this is, what does that mean for people who are experiencing that? Because presumably, even if your response is reasonable, that has an impact on your life. Absolutely. This doesn't appear in a person's life as a monolith that is universal to each of us. We come to it differently and it can have uh, a variety of different forms of appearing you know the severity can go from mild to medium to significant to the most extreme Brett told me that when the feelings are mild people can find ways to minimize the impact on their lives when the feelings are at a mild level the person might uh, be upset in a kind of transient way and their distress can be calmed by a focus on reassuring narratives about how talented people are on the problem and, you know, we have hope in technologies and political fixes, that sort of thing. But when eco-anxiety starts to get more serious, the distress that you can feel, it starts to become harder to ward off or manage. You might see someone starting to take big changes in their lifestyle, like refusing to fly ever again, that sort of a thing. Um, When they enter the significant level, this is when it can be starting to become quite interruptive to people's ability to be in relationship, like in relationship with other people who don't seem to care about climate breakdown. You know, couples splitting up because one wants to have a child and the other one doesn't because they don't feel comfortable putting them into a climate-changed world. And then when you get to that really severe level, we're talking about impairing daily functioning. A person might not be able to sleep, work, go to school, concentrate, eat properly, generally be easeful and 
this can become, of course, quite dangerous. Who is most impacted by eco-anxiety? There were some initial assumptions that eco-anxiety was predominantly a preoccupation of the worried well, so to speak. Privileged and protected populations who read about the stuff in the news but don't have to face a life-threatening hurricane, wildfire, flood, Mm. um, drought on their doorstep. And recent research has shown that that's really not the case and that this is affecting people in high exposure zones. So low-income communities of color in places like the United States are uh, bearing the brunt of the climate crisis already Mm -hmm. and have the least to do with creating the crisis. And we see this as a mirrored effect around the world, but it's not that there's any subsection of the population that really is immune to this, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious, you know, given all that, where do you think this idea that people who are very privileged, largely rich white people, where mm-hmm. do you think this this idea that they are the people who are most impacted by eco-anxiety came from? Well, um, my colleague, Sarah Jaquette Ray, who is a fantastic climate justice scholar and professor, wrote this hard-hitting piece called The Unbearable Whiteness of Climate Anxiety and basically said, I'm worried that climate anxiety can operate like white fragility. You know, Mm. where white people respond with a bruised sense of self if faced with the anger of people of color for the harms that white supremacy causes in their lives, which is really not conducive to the kind of partnership and collaboration that's needed. Jennifer Uchendu knows this dynamic firsthand. She's a young Nigerian activist who runs a climate justice organization called Susty Vibes. Susty Vibes means sustainability vibes. The idea is to make, you know, sustainability cool, actionable, and also relatable for young people in Nigeria. In 2019, Jennifer was invited to speak about her work at the United Nations Annual Climate Change Conference, or COP. And she was excited. She'd been running Susty Vibes in her home city of Lagos for a number of years. And it seemed like this was going to be a really big moment for her to bring her views on climate change to the forefront. They had initially told me I had about three minutes or five minutes to speak. And then they came back to say, you know, there's no time. Jennifer doesn't get bumped, but it's almost worse. They tell her instead that she has two minutes. You have to make it two minutes. And then they came back again to say... 20 seconds, keep it brief, you what? know? And I was just looking like, what, what is even happening here? And then I took that 20 seconds to really just call, call them out. This is tokenism at its worst. Why you have a young black African, you know, coming to talk about her work on climate change and you want her to speak for 20 seconds. What can I possibly right. say in that? All of the excitement she'd felt drained out of her. Here were these people who claimed to understand what's at stake. And it seemed like they didn't see the value in letting this young activist from Nigeria contribute to the conversation. It felt like a betrayal. It was almost like I should be, I should be grateful that I had an opportunity to speak. Wow. Yeah, that was, that was the impression I, I got huh. at the time. And I wasn't buying it. You know, I was just, you know, really yeah. fed up. 
it just shows that you don't care and you're not in touch with you know the sufferings of mm-hmm. people that you claim to be serving more on that after the break Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Where we left off, Nigerian activist Jennifer Uchendu had gone to present at the COP conference, the world's biggest forum on climate change. And they told her that she had all of 20 seconds to present. She was still in shock as she headed back to her hotel room. I mean, I would go back to my room and, you know, try to journal or write about, you know, what what did I get out of this? You know, I find myself just, you know, tearing up because I'm like, what am I doing here? How am I, you know, contributing to, you know, making change? What what are we all doing here? Why did we all travel with all that emissions to get here, you know, for nothing? And I felt, you know, some form of guilt and anger that I was kind of involved so close to to that sort of um, ugly reality that, you know, power holders and leaders aren't taking the crisis as seriously as they should. It just really threw me off. And for me, it just seemed like there's almost no getting out of this where we're doomed, you know. Jennifer heads back to the UK where she was living and she thinks... I'm done with activism. I I was feeling very down and, you know, it was a form of paralysis, I would say, just feeling very powerless in the face of, you know, something as big as um, climate change. She eventually realizes that what she's feeling is eco-anxiety. She had heard of the term before, but only now did it really begin to snap into focus. Like, oh shit, this is what that is. She learned about the work of a climate psychotherapist. I wrote her to say, not just am I researching this for my, for my thesis, but I also need help for myself. The psychotherapist was Caroline Hickman. She specializes in working with people experiencing eco-anxiety or eco-distress. 
She's been researching this with children and young people globally for about 10 years. I'm just trying to think where we met for the first time. Jennifer got in contact with me when she was a student here in the UK to ask my advice about the work she was doing. And I was intrigued. In a way, I didn't think she would relate to it. You know, she's not African, you know, just a very different geographic and reality, but she could completely relate to me and it felt really validating. I mean, it was probably just a conversation, but it felt like therapy to me. <laughs> you know, I'm like, why is the burden of hope on us? This doesn't even feel fair. You know, what can we possibly do in our own small corner and what do I go back to tell the young people that I work with in Nigeria? The more I learned about the crisis, the more anxious it made me feel, the more my thought patterns were skewed towards fear and anger and frustration, the more powerless I felt. I call it a pretzeling of your psychology, of your brain. And I, it's very closely equated to living in a family as a child where you are emotionally misunderstood or emotionally hurt or abused by the very people who you would expect to take care of you and to protect you. The same way as we expect our governments to take care of us. So young people are left feeling powerless and helpless and frustrated that they're the ones paying the price with their futures, but they're not the ones that have caused the problem. One thing she said to me that, you know, remained with me for such a long time is that if I wasn't feeling like this, then I probably am not, you know, a real activist or a connected activist because Everyone should be concerned about, you know, what's happening. This is a healthy response to, to the crisis. There should be some form of concern, especially because you're so connected to the issue. So it only makes sense that you respond in this way. Though when, the more I got to read about it, it was very Western focused and less about, you know, experiences of people like me or people in Africa, but still, I thought it was important that it had a name. You know, that fear and that worry, that concern, and that impact that, you know, thinking about the climate crisis, worrying about your future can have on a person, then really connects the dots. The feeling of power that comes with having a word to describe the challenge that you're facing, the pain that you're in, that can be huge. Just the message that you're not alone. That said, Dr. Hickman thinks that the term eco-anxiety still leaves something to be desired. So I think as an introductory label, as a gateway in, I think it's useful. Recently, I've started to think maybe we need to call it eco-abandonment. I actually don't care what we call it. What I care about is that we understand it. But if we're using a shared language, we have a much better chance of having a shared understanding and a shared solution. And maybe that's the whole point. Britt Ray, the researcher I spoke to earlier, told me that the goal is not to spiral alone because we need resiliency. Climate change action is a long game. If you can build a shared understanding, a shared community, you can access what she calls a non-binary approach to the future. 
where you aren't just viewing the world through a fatalistic lens, where you can still experience energy-replenishing joy amid the chaos. These are not new feelings. Environmental justice communities have been working through these emotions and finding the strength to mobilize despite them and because of them for decades. We just have a term for it now, a shorthand, that can get you there that much faster. So am I grateful that there's a word called eco-anxiety? Definitely, because it's helped frame, you know, my mind to say this experience is real and it's valid and it's useful and I can contribute more into how mental health issues are being talked about and looked at in Africa. So, you know, I've kind of even switched to saying this is a problem, we need help to now saying everyone should even have a form of eco-anxiety because that Mm. would propel you to do some, you know, work because you would be more sort of motivated to to work, particularly when you're connected in in, in a community. Today, Jennifer is working toward getting more folks in Nigeria to talk about the specific ways in which the climate crisis affects the mental health of people in the region. To do that, she recently created the Eco-Anxiety Africa Project, an initiative within her own organization, Susty Vibes. More and more people are coming up to say, yes, I feel this too, you know, yes, this is something I relate to, oh, this is what it's called, you know, but also knowing that there is, you know, that unique African experience of it that is very much masked in anger, you know, and frustration is more of it's here, it's impacting us, and we have to, you know, live with this. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Special thanks to Britt Ray, author of Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis, in bookstores everywhere on May 3rd. Thanks also to Jennifer Uchendu and Caroline Hickman. We've got links to their work in the show notes. This episode was produced by Sophie Kazis, Sam Greenspan, and myself. Vice News Reports is produced by Sophie Kazis, Jen Kinney, and Adriana Tapia. Our senior producers are Ashley Cleek, Sam Greenspan, and Stephanie Karayuki. Our associate producers are Steph Brown, Sam Egan, and Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Pran Bandy, Steve Bone, Kyle Murdoch, and Evan Sutton. Our executive producer is Adiza Egan, and the VP of Vice Audio is Kate Osborne. Janet Lee is senior production manager for Vice Audio. Fact-checking by Katherine Barner. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. I'm Ariel Zumros. 
If you have the time this week, it would be so great if you went to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and gave our podcast a rating and a review because it really does help other people find the show. Vice News Reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week. Thank you.